from Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, we're joined by Mr. Lawrence Gonzalez, who will discuss everyday survival. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Our behavior is governed by mental models that we have of the world. But what happens when these models no longer are valid? How can we adapt to such changes in the environment? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Mr. Lawrence Gonzalez. Mr. Gonzalez is the renowned lecturer and author who has been studying accidents and their roots in human behavior for over 35 years. He has lectured in front of groups ranging from the Santa Fe Institute to Legs Mason Capital Management and have taught at Northwestern University author of numerous books and publications, including the best-selling Deep Survival. His most recent work, Everyday Survival, Why Smart People Do Stupid Things, continues this explorations of these issues for a general audience. Mr. Gonzalez, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure, and I think this is a, really a very fascinating book, Everyday Survival, uh, but I'm curious about the subtitle, really, Why Do Smart People Do Stupid Things? <laughs> well, I think that the simplest way to answer this question, although this is not a simple book, is that we evolved to live in an environment that for all intents and purposes no longer exists. And the natural systems that we carry with us in our brains sometimes don't serve us so well in a modern technical world. In addition, because of our great fortune in living in this wonderful country, the United States of America, where we have everything done for us, we have become complacent and fallen into what I refer to as a vacation state of mind where we think all the old rules don't apply. So these forces can trip us up in our everyday lives. I see. So uh, in a sense, you argue in the book that we form very early models of what the world should be like and really don't adapt to what changes in the environment. Yeah, well, it's it's a natural feature of all animals, at least higher animals, to not really see the world, but to see models of the world, very simplified models of things. This allows us to recognize things instantly, so we don't waste a lot of time. We look at a dog, we know it's a dog, even if it's a Great Dane or a a Cocker Spaniel, they look very different, but we recognize them because we have a very simplified model in the brain of a dog. I also talk about another efficiency system in the brain, which is making behavioral scripts, as I call them. These are automated activities that we do without thinking. So, for example, you can tie your shoe without thinking about it. But it's really a very difficult thing to learn to tie your shoe when you're three years old. So these scripts form that take something that requires all of your attention and turn it into something that requires none of your attention at all. That's okay. It's a good thing for evolution, but it's not such a good thing when you're driving your car, for example, and not thinking, although most of us can do it automatically. (laughs) Well, certainly getting from uh, home to work, but if we need to take a different route, that certainly could be a challenge, right? Well, that's a good way to break up the system and safeguard yourself is to take different routes all the time. Uh, It's interesting because uh, most people would argue that evolutionarily we were born in an environment which didn't really change very much, so forming these very early mental models was actually useful since the environment really didn't change much. 
Yes, that's true. And when it did, people died. I think that you have to understand that, that these systems I'm talking about are very efficient and work statistically over a large number of people over a large period of time. It doesn't mean every individual survived. It means that, generally speaking, enough individuals survived to continue the species. So they're not, it's not a perfect system, but it's the system we inherited. Uh, there also seems to be much research that suggests that adult brains are perhaps less plastic than younger brains. Well, actually, it's not true. It used to be thought that the adult brain was fixed. Once you grew up, you know, you had a certain amount of brain material, and that was it. And it was wired in a certain way. And recent research in the last 15 or 20 years has shown that, in fact, the adult brain is very plastic. It can change and grow completely new connections, as, as in fact, it does every time you learn something. There was an experiment done with people who had gone blind as adults and learned Braille, and they discovered that the visual cortex, which normally takes information from the eyes, had grown to take information from the fingertips. So tactile senses were now overtaking this, this part of the brain that previously had been devoted entirely to vision. And it happened with, started to happen within a few days, actually. So the brain is very plastic, and it gives me hope that, that people can learn. Again, you sort of argue in the book that it's our modern environment that has made us lazy in terms of actually adapting to very changing environments. Yeah, I think that contributes to it. Our way of thinking in our environment, because we have been able to create an environment that's tailored to our needs, is that we make the rules. And in fact, part of my effort in writing Everyday Survival is to show what some of the natural laws are that control our lives and that we don't, in fact, make the rules. We, we have to abide by the rules. And I think pretending that we don't have to obey natural laws has led us into a lot of trouble like the climate change that we're now facing. So there, there's a chapter in the book called the 10,000-watt light bulb. An average person uses the same amount of power as a 100-watt light bulb. That's about how much power you burn is 100 watts. But in the United States, each of us uses up the equivalent of 10,000 watts of energy, which is like taking 100 100-watt light bulbs and leaving them on 24 hours a day in your house. And that's a pretty astonishing thing. We've come to use resources at a rate that's just not sustainable because we think we can and because it's fun. You know, it's fun to do these things we get to do. But if you begin to understand the rules of how nature works, nature always exacts a cost for these things. There's no free lunch. All of these activities come with unintended consequences. The problem is that the costs are not really directed towards the individual from the behavior, so there's no real direct feedback. Right, and if you think about our culture, imagine if you were trying to train a dog. You get a puppy, and you want to train the puppy. You get a handful of treats, and when the dog does something you like, you give him a treat. And when the dog does something you don't like, you say, no, bad dog. Pretty soon the dog gets trained. Well, in our culture, we get rewarded no matter what dumb things we do. And the, the costs, as you say, are kept out of sight of us. So, for example, you get up in the morning and you blow dry your hair. It's a nice experience. It's convenient. It's warm. It works. But you don't, what you don't think about is that somewhere else someone is burning coal to make that electricity that's running that hair dryer and the coal is putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and mercury into the atmosphere, and mercury is a neurotoxin. It causes brain damage and birth defects. So you're pleasantly blow-drying your hair, but you're not thinking, well, there's this other cost out there to what I'm doing. Is it worth it? You know, should I be doing this? And, and what I've tried to do in everyday survival is to give people some 
basic understanding of how their universe works that will sort of jar the frame through which they look at their world. And instead of just going blithely through daily life in modern America, they'll suddenly start to see these things as, wait a minute, you know, this, maybe this isn't such a good idea, this thing that I'm doing here, and possibly change their behavior. So what are some recommendations then for changing the frame, as you put it, of how we look at our behavior? Well, I always like stories. People like stories and concrete examples. That seems to be what makes sense to them. If you tell someone, drive carefully, it doesn't get much done. You know, if you show them a crash, it helps a little. But I know that since writing Everyday Survival, I react differently to just normal things that people do without thinking about them, like taking out the trash. When I take out the trash, I think, I've got this bag full of manufactured goods for the most part, things that someone made. And often these are things that are perfectly good. You go to the Whole Foods store or the Trader Joe's and you buy the transparent plastic container of raspberries and you take it home and you get the raspberries out and you throw it away. And this is this beautiful object that five or 6,000 years ago, if you had shown it to someone, would have been an object of great reverence. This beautiful, durable, transparent container is really a work of genius and yet I'm throwing it away. Why am I doing that? Why is this culture established so that I have to throw that thing away? And it makes you pause and start re-examining your world if you start thinking about this. Once you do that, you can't get away from it. Once you do it, you start seeing it everywhere. And then you begin reconsidering the, the way you behave and, and changing your behavior. Part of what I have done in everyday survival is to try to educate people a little bit in some basic science that will expand your mind a little so that you think differently about all kinds of things. And I think only by thinking differently and thinking more broadly do you begin to open yourself up to the idea that your way of life may not be the only way or the best way of life. And you, you start by doing little things, like I mentioned. For example, I don't set my thermostat as high anymore. I don't run my air conditioning. I turn out lights when they're not needed. All of these little things show up on the big radar screen of what people are doing in this country. And as we do those things, our, our behavior gradually becomes more benign and less harmful. I don't know how far it can go, but it's a start. Hmm. So you mentioned you know, many of the sort of natural laws that impact our behavior. I'm wondering if uh, maybe we could talk about some of those. I guess you mentioned self-organizing systems in the book. Yeah, well, the recent economic catastrophe is an example of a self-organizing system and how these things work. A self-organizing system is going to have a bunch of agents, in this case people, who operate by pretty simple rules, really. If you look at a market like the stock market, all people can really do is buy and sell. There's lots of complex financial instruments involved, but basically people are buying and selling, and that's the decision they make. So as long as there's a bunch of diversity of opinion, the system works pretty well. Like if I want to sell I can find somebody to buy because he thinks I'm wrong and he's right. But when everybody has the same opinion suddenly, it goes bad. It either goes into a boom like the housing boom where houses were selling for much more than they were worth or into a crash where everybody heads for the exit at the same time. So these self-organizing systems, even though they're very simple, can produce very complex results, as we've seen, and they operate in many places in our lives. In order to understand them and, and behave better in the face of them, we have to realize they're going to have these busts and booms no matter what happens. If you look at the stock market over the long period of history, you see it's very stable. It does have busts and booms, but it always comes back to a normal 
range. And so instead of panicking, they can take a more philosophical view of it and just sit on their hands for a while. Mm. And, you know, the market does really always come back to stability, or at least it has over the course of time that we've had it. But, you know, it can be less painful if, if people aren't behaving like lemmings. In your book, you talk about a story at NASA that led to a repeat of the Challenger disaster. Yeah. In the book, there's a chapter called groupness, which is a term that psychologists use to describe the fact that we people form in groups that can be based on anything from your, your favorite baseball team to your religion or your family or anything. And in the case of NASA, they had formed a very tight-knit, powerful group in group that was essentially a group of people who thought that they were the most technically excellent engineers in the world and may well have been. But what this groupness effect does is it prevents you from taking in information from the outside. You tend to reject things that come from outside the group, including information. People outside the group were trying to tell them, hey, there's something wrong with the space shuttle. This was true both in Challenger and Columbia. And they couldn't hear it. They weren't listening. They just kept launching. And every time they launched without an accident happening, they said, see, we're right. You know, we're, this must have worked. So they were essentially teaching themselves a bad lesson, even while refusing to hear what outsiders were saying. And eventually, of course, the shuttle blew up. And, and by the way, this groupness phenomenon happens a tremendous amount in business. Businesses, corporations, and institutions are very good at creating these in-groups and perpetuating them, and they become very isolated. One way of fighting against this is to just be aware of it. First of all, all of these effects I'm talking about, just being aware of them helps you. But in a corporate or organizational setting, you can break up the groups by changing the people who are in them, by forcing them into situations where they have to take in information from the outside, by bringing out outside experts and so on. There are a lot of ways to do that. It's just that oftentimes it's easier and culturally more normal just to let the group go on and on and on. I'm curious, in your earlier book, looking at people surviving in very extreme situations, how do you think their stories relate to everyday survival? Well, in deep survival, I used accidents in wilderness situations and people cast away at sea and things like that as a way of illustrating uh, how people get into trouble and how people get out of trouble. And then I tried to relate those incidents to other things in our lives so that the lessons of everyday survival become applicable across the board. And Deep Survival was something of a prescriptive book. It sort of told you, you know, here's how, how this works and here's some good things to do. Everyday Survival is much more of old-fashioned science book in many ways. It's a book about how the universe works, and in passing, it's about how these things influence us. And, and it raises philosophical questions like whether or not there's anything we can do about our behavior, or whether we are simply a product of nature and doomed to fulfill natural law. And I think that's a serious question that, that I don't attempt to answer, but that needs raising. So in everyday survival, it takes people on a, a much broader and deeper journey through the world and through the universe. And deep survival was strictly concerned with an individual's survival, while everyday survival is much more concerned with our survival as a species or as a culture in any event. What do you think about like, human behavior? Do you think it is very much uh, deterministic? Or, you know, I think that certainly we're capable of rational decision-making that is not just controlled by instinct. But, but the question is whether we can apply that rational decision-making to important things 
or whether we can just apply it to little things like for example you can decide you want to lose 20 pounds and work work at it and do it because it's good for you so i know there's such a thing as free will and there's such a thing as rational as people being rational about their behavior the question is whether we can do this collectively in some way that will help us in the future that will make it, uh, the world as enjoyable for my kids as it has been for me and i think it's an open question uh, I, I think here in this country we have a good chance of doing that. Look how fast the word green came into our vocabulary just a few years ago. Nobody heard, nobody talked about green housing or green living. Now everything is green this and green that, right? So very quickly these ideas can come into our culture. The question is, can a country like China do anything like this? China is building a new coal-fired electricity plant at the rate of one a week. That's 52 a year, and they're not clean. And so, you know, everybody in China wants to live like we live. They want a car. You know, they want hair dryers, which is understandable, of course. The question is, can the world survive this? Can the world survive in a situation where everyone in India and everyone in China is behaving the way we're now behaving? Well, these are certainly the challenges I think we face for the future. Um, I'm curious, how did you become interested in topic in general? Well, it started when I was a little kid and heard about my father's survival in World War II. He was a combat pilot, was shot down over Germany and fell 27,000 feet without a parachute. And that got my attention as a little kid and started me thinking about really why one person survives when another doesn't. He was a scientist, and I grew up working in his laboratories, and that interested me in science. So the two things naturally came together as I went through my life of writing and researching. Well, it looks like we're running slightly out of time, but I'm curious if maybe you just have some final words on this issue. Yes, I, I do. It's, it's a hard thing to tell someone to be smarter, <laughs> you know, which is essentially what I'm doing. It's like telling somebody to be taller. But I think by leading people through stories that involve real people, dramatic stories, people can become enlightened. They, they can see the light in ways that they can't if you just give them information. So in Everyday Survival, I've tried to write a science book that is a storytelling book that leads people through adventures. There are actually adventures that I go on in the book that lead people through adventures that tell them something about their world and that they come away moved to view their world differently and perhaps behave differently. Well, it's certainly a very fascinating book. Uh, the new book, again, is Everyday Survival, uh, Why Smart People Do Stupid Things. Mr. Gonzalez, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Thank you. And you were just listening to Mr. Lawrence Gonzalez discussing Everyday Survival. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Survivor or Non-Starter. And so for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 likes to know if you think they're a Survivor or a Non-Starter, and uh, maybe a little reason why. Mr. Gonzalez, you ready to play the game? Yes. Okay, here we go. Person number one, Survivor or Non-Starter, pop star Britney Spears. Uh, loser. <laughs> Oh, well, you know, anybody who would be a pop star, is uh, that, that means you're on television, you know, and since television rots your mind, I figure that goes without saying that the people who appear on television, for the most part, are going to be contributing to that. All right, number two is the secretary, <laughs> Hank Paulson. Well, you know, I think the jury is still out on him, but to tell you the truth, my hopes aren't very high. I think the people at that level in government are often blinded by their own conceits, and that's one of the one of the non-survivor traits I talk about in my previous book, Deep Survival, which is thinking you know when you don't know. Hmm. So I'd have to put him in the non-starter category. All right. Well, he certainly thinks he knows. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number three is Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the non-starter. He's a guy who's focused on not only making money, but making himself more visible. He does stupid things by appearing on television shows and acting like a clown. And anyone who's focused strictly on making money and making his own self-image bigger is missing the point. True, true. Uh, number four is Apple founder Steve Jobs. Well, I like Steve Jobs, and I think he is a survivor. He, he's uh, admittedly a weird guy. I've read a couple of different books about him, and, and there's no question he's a, a big ego and a, and a strange critter. But he always bounces back with something that works. And, you know, even after being shoved out of Apple, he was lured back into Apple and made a success, huge success, of some of the products. And I don't disagree with all of his decisions, but I, I think he's definitely a survivor. And uh, finally, number five, it's the outgoing president of the United States, George Bush. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, total non-starter. Should have never started in the first place. <laughs> But I think it's indicative of, uh, I mean, I don't like to talk about politics, but I think it's indicative of how lulled into complacency and even stupidity the American public has been that he got uh, elected in the first place. Mm. I think anybody with critical intelligence should have been able to see through him as just an absolute zero as a leader. Mm. Well, uh, Mr. Gonzalez, I do want to thank you very much for sticking around playing the game and, of course, talking about your new book, Everyday Survival, Why Smart People Do Stupid Things. Thanks for having me. It was our pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok's, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.